to Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Amanda, for coming on Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. We are glad to have you as a guest today. Um, Amanda works with uh, Dream.org, and she used to work with the ACLU of Kentucky and is also formerly incarcerated. And I'm just going to introduce Amanda and have her just tell you about her, her journey and how she got to where she is today and how many others could do the same post-incarceration and just make our communities more better to live in on a daily basis and not depend on any of our governmental systems that we have. Um, So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Amanda. Yeah, thank you so much, Sierra, for having me on. And yeah, my name is Amanda Hall, and I am the Justice Director over at Dream.org. So Dream.org is a national organization um, that works on three different issues. So justice issues, we work on tech equity to make sure that jobs in the tech field and um, opportunities that um, they're more equitable, specifically um, doing scholarship programs, cohorts, trainings, Um, for um, Black folks to make sure they have opportunities in those fields because so often, you know, those jobs uh, disproportionately go to white folks. And then we work on climate equity and also making sure that communities that are hit hardest by um, climate change, which is often um, Black communities, brown communities, uh, poor communities, um, as, you know, this new green job world starts to dawn and come out that those communities most hit have access to those. They have access to clean drinking water and better environments. And then, as I mentioned, I work in the justice uh, department. So we work on um, any mass incarceration, um, work on on the federal level. You know, the priority we're working on is the Equal Act, which would stop the unequal uh, sentencing disparity when it comes to crack and cocaine at the federal level. Uh, You know, that disparity used to be one to 100 um, folks, uh, primarily Black folks, sentenced, prosecuted under crimes which involve crack were, you know, as I said, one to 100, you know, we're doing these wildly long sentencing, truly losing their lives in federal prisons. Now that disparity is one to 18, which is still so unjust. So the Equal Act would end that disparity completely and would be retroactive. So that's our big priority on the federal level right now. And then we work on various issues around the nation on the state level. And we we work right now legislatively in nine states. And the way that we do those campaigns is we have someone called an empathy leader. So uh, someone that has been directly impacted by the system in that state because who knows better on how we change it and some of the issues that we should tackle And we really lean on them for their guidance. What issues, what policies do you want to work on in your state? As opposed to, you know, having our preset agenda of what we want to do and then support them, you know, really build a robust campaign infrastructure around them, provide um, trainings on organizing, campaigning, you know, how to meet with legislators. Our policy team helps with policy analysis. Our comms team helps to elevate their issues. And yeah, so that's what I oversee those um, campaigns right now, but real high level. Like I said, it's really those directly impacted folks, those empathy leaders leading those campaigns. I'm just very fortunate that I, I get to work with them day in and day out. So yeah, and I'm, I'm passionate about this work because I come from a a rural community on Appalachia. 
I know North Carolina's got some Appalachia. Um, so out in Eastern Kentucky and as a child, you know, my first experience, my first impressions of law enforcement and other systems, which are adjacent, like, um, you know, the child welfare system was very negative. I grew up uh, in low-income housing, and unfortunately, my mom had uh, been a survivor of some domestic violence situations, had turned to um, drugs, and, you know, was incarcerated. So, you know, the cops were only coming to my house to get her in trouble and then taking me away. There was never any resources like for my mom, like, hey, maybe you should get help or why don't you all have enough to eat? Or, you know, it was none of that. It was always just punitive um, and punishment. Um, so even as a child, like the systems, you know, the criminal justice system, but so many other systems are entangled within that was just confusing and unjust and just, um, you know, uh, were really disheartening. So, uh, you know, in my teens, I ended up involved in substance use um, and had some mental health issues uh, that were unaddressed, so a lot of um, trauma started getting arrested. I got arrested uh, the first time as a youth, but I just have to uplift. I am a white woman. So even though my story, you know, is harsh, like I still had privilege throughout, you know, like the way that Black folks and individuals of color experience the system, like throughout it, I've seen it it's so much harsher than what I have. And I was really care. I just have to like put that out there and, and make that like very prevalent from the front end. But because when I was arrested, I got taken to school, you know, I didn't even go to a juvenile facility. Like that would have been very different. You know, we see so many States, we see disproportionality in the criminal legal system, but especially we will see it with our kids which is just, I mean, uh, the way that we incarcerate youth of color is just alarming. So at 18, though, I started getting arrested, arrested, cycled in and out of county jails for years. I would do a couple of months or weekends or days. It was always for, you know, a lot of public intoxications, um, things of that nature. And then in my mid-20s, um, so this was, you know, out where I lived, um, opioids and then opiates, you know, some Kentucky heroin. Has a huge, um, drug problem, and it's a it's a low populated state as well, and so yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. Absolutely, absolutely, and it it was just all over our community, um, all over you know a lot of communities. But I, I ended up Especially. with. Yeah, I ended up with uh, drug trafficking charges for, it was a prescription pill, it was one prescription pill, so I got a five-year sentence, and then a complicity for being in the room when my boyfriend uh, trafficked, and the thing was to, like, get me to, you know, be a confidential informant, um, so, and, um, you know, I wasn't willing to do that, you know, I like I said, I'd seen what the system does. And um, so I ended up going to prison. I went to Kentucky's only maximum security for prison for women in the state. And, you know, while I was in there, I thought, well, okay, while I'm here, I'm sure there'll be all kinds of programs. You know, maybe there's, some, I mean, there is nothing. There's a correctional officer that sexually assaulted nine women. He got probation all of us sitting in the day room watching it on TV as we're doing like years and years of incarceration for offenses. Yeah, and I ended up getting out, finally was able to address my mental health stuff and substance use disorder and started that, uh, you know, road to reentry, which is so difficult 
But yeah, I'm talking a lot. I can get into that. No. Moment, but, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing your story. And I just kind of want to piggyback on, you know, you said that it started with your mom having, you know, drug abuse and domestic violence. And so that's what so many children have to deal with. And even the parents. And there's no type of resources that really address domestic violence or really address drug issues. Instead, we want to criminalize people for the trauma that they're going through instead of giving them the right resources like mental health. I mean, you always need counseling because I've been in several domestic violences and it's caused me to have PTSD on top of seizures. So I understand. And so, so many people, especially when you're in a low income environment, you tend to experience those things. But I think we tend to forget that our government are the ones that sourced our communities with drugs. That's where it started when they when they started resourcing our community with drugs. That's where our villages start to be. They were tearing down our villages so that we could start depending on them on top of involuntary servitude, which is still slavery, which was not abolished. And that is how it started. It started in the Black community so that they could continue to incarcerate Black people. And then it ended up trickling down to other nationality. So it's not just only Black people who live in poverty, who sell drugs, who do drugs, who experience domestic violence. You have white people, you have Mexicans. And so I don't think that they really thought that it was going to involve other nationalities. They were just aiming for the Black communities. But you also have people that are white, Black, Mexican, whatever, and they experience the same thing being a low-income population. And you have some states are just low-income, like Kentucky and West Virginia, are poor states, not just cities, but poor states. And so the politicians aren't pouring into their states. They are de-resourcing the communities and putting harmful things in there so that we can end up in prison, so that we do have this mass incarceration that we have today, where we are today. That is why America has the most incarcerated population out of any other country that you see. And so um, people like Amanda and many other people that follow this journey, um, we're glad to have you here to help right the wrong because you all are the ones that have experienced how the justice system ha- and I've experienced it myself being in domestic violence and just being in trouble here and there. I haven't been to jail. I mean, I've been in this holding cell, but I haven't, you know, experienced. But I've experienced the system, and so all of your governmental systems, whether it's CPS, whether it's schools, because I know a lot of Black children get suspended a lot, and so they end up going to juvenile. And so it's you have your prison-to-school prison to pipeline, you have your CPS-to-prison pipeline, and then you just have your being poor-to-prison <laughs> pipeline. And so um, it's really important that we keep just letting the community understand that these are not bad people. They're put in, A lot of people are put in certain situations that they don't want to be in and they don't, they don't know how to handle it. And when you don't have correct mental health, because America does not have correct mental health, then this is what you're going to get. You're going to get people on drugs and you're going to get people that are trying to darken that trauma that they've been through and they don't know how to handle it. We're humans and we don't know how to handle a bunch of trauma. And the way we handle it is going in and trying to, I guess cover that trauma as best as we can so we don't feel it, like numb ourselves. And so um, I just appreciate you sharing your story because a lot of people don't want to share their story. Some people don't want to talk about what they've been through because they're ashamed because people, America has made you feel ashamed for just having life experiences instead of saying, hey, it's okay. Um, You know, you committed a crime and we understand why you did it. Understanding why people commit crimes is where America needs to be, and they're not there yet. They just think people commit crimes. But what's funny is the people that put you in prison are the same ones committing crimes, but they're getting away with it because they're people of power. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Just like how, you know, people are being sexually harassed and, and raped in prison, and nothing happens to those people. They're committing the same crime as supposedly the people incarcerated. If they're watching, they're committing the same crimes, but they get less time. So it's we have to start making sure that everybody is treated equally and fair. And I'm very passionate about trying to change the way America thinks because we have been cultivated to think one way and that's not the correct way of thinking. And that's not how we're going to get ahead as a whole population. Yeah. I mean, Sierra, you said a lot and I agree with all of it. No, I, I think that, I mean, that narrative 
of people that are incarcerated. And and I mean, when you first hit and started talking about children, I remember when my mom got incarcerated. You know, I'm from this little small town. Everybody knows who we are anyway. My second grade teacher had the newspaper with my mom's mugshot on the desk in our class. And I just remember just being so embarrassed. I mean, I wouldn't raise my hand to go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? Like, and the trauma and the, you know, people whispering. But it was never, and we still don't do it for kids that have parents are incarcerated. It was never like, oh, let's talk to these kids. Like, let's work out this trauma. Like, let's make sure, you know, that's not. Yeah. And that trauma just compounds and. You know, it's never addressed. Like, it's not far-fetched to think that these kids are going to grow up and maybe, like you mentioned, like, drugs, that's a way to self-medicate, you know, to feel better, to escape some of that trauma and the things that they've been through. Or we're not addressing that poverty, you know, maybe going to the store and shoplifting some food because you're hungry. You know, it's, it's just, it's wild that we you know, like you said, we're, we're not at a place where we will look at the root causes and conditions. We keep just, you know, tearing off what we see of the weed instead of pulling it up by the root. And, you know, unless we really do that, I don't know how we're going to move together as a society, except for what you're doing right now. You know, us like coming together, building communities, like learning how to take care of ourselves you know, the work that I do, I love it so much because we're able to invest in directly impacted people to change their communities, to be able to, you know, engage. Yes, yes, yeah. Because it doesn't look like nobody else is going to come to do it for us. No. And if we don't do it, then we're still going to be in a space where we just keep mass incarcerating people for no reason. And don't get me wrong, I understand there are some people who just are born with a chemical imbalance in their brain, and they might not be able to live among society, but I still feel like they should be put somewhere where they're getting continuous, holistic mental health treatment. You know what I'm saying? Not where you're put in a situation where you're still being dehumanized, and it's not going to fix your mental health issue at all, so that maybe possibly you could be back around the environment and the community to help better it, but instead we want to just throw people away. Like we're to the point where we throw children away. Like why is a child, why, how could you, and I hear so many legislators in North Carolina say, well, they committed a crime and you can't just let them out. They're children. Okay. We have data stating that children's brain, especially men do not, it doesn't develop sometimes until they're 30 fully, fully developed until they're 30. So for you to say, oh, well, they deserve life without parole. A child, a child, you're throwing a child away because they really still didn't know the difference between right and wrong, or they were hurting so bad that they wanted somebody else to feel that pain. I hear a lot of people say that I was hurting so bad that I wanted somebody else to feel what I felt because there's no way for them to to let that out. And I still feel like even sometimes when you go to mental health, like I've been to psychologists and I've been to therapists and sometimes I still feel like they don't hear what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? It still feels like I'm not being heard and I'm not letting out how I feel. So when you're still holding on to that trauma and you really don't know how to release it, it's going to cause those ripple effects. And so I think America really needs to get a handle on what is true. What does true mental health look like? And how can we really address true mental health in every aspect? And in restorative justice, I love restorative justice so much. And I think it needs to be in every aspect of every community, pre-trial, post-trial, just in the community. I know Emancipate is trying to build community with people to get them to understand that we don't have to call the police. We've been so programmed to, to think, okay, well, the only way to get a handle on this situation is to call the police and let them handle it. When a lot of times that makes the situation 10 times worse because they're already in a state of heightenedness. So they're going to come in with just to be on call. They're going to be on their highest alert. So they're not thinking from a rational state of mind to say, okay, well, this person's having a mental health issue or this person is just struggling with trauma or this person, you know, is 
whatever they're going through, they automatically come in and think that they have to be aggressive and that aggressiveness is going to handle it. And that's not, that's not the key. And so we're trying to build the community to understand that we have to have our own community accountability and that calling the police is not an option. Like I remember years ago when my when my grandmother was living, my great grandmother, like they had a village, you know, she would be the babysitter. You had people that would be the peacemakers if something was going on inside the community. We didn't call the police because we knew being a black community, you can't call the police, period. You just can't. And so I think the police knew that. And so I think that's why they began to tear down the villages that we once had that mm-hmm. where we depended on one another and not governmental systems. And so now everybody's dependent on the governmental system. And so they are really ruining our communities, period. Mm-hmm. You know, after I got out of prison, I lived in Louisville for 10 years. So I ended up there at a recovery program, then went on to work there. And I went back to college eventually to become a social worker because that's what, you know, I wanted to do direct service. I had some time there working at a counseling center where we counseled folks who were had domestic violence charges because I really wanted to understand because I had, you know, some resentment about what happened with my mom you know and I saw in that years of that compounding trauma and not treating it and then I I was able to supervise a shelter for women in Louisville who were experiencing homelessness and it was the only they call it a wet shelter so it was the only shelter that women could come to in which they were actively using um, drugs or alcohol that day you know a lot of shelters will have policies that you can't come in if you're intoxicated. So that is like, to me, that's dangerous because that's putting a vulnerable population at even more risk. Because then when you're intoxicated, I mean, you are man or woman, but especially woman, you are just so vulnerable. So I remember while working there, you know, it had came to a point that there would be a small number, it was a couple of police officers who started bringing women to that center because they're just like, I don't know what to do with them anymore because they kept arresting. And I'm like, why do we not? So, you know, now is like, we're starting more, you see a, a tinge of it. We're not even close to it, but of, of diverting those people, like why the police aren't meant to solve every problem. You know, but I saw that years ago in real time. And like some of them even knew we weren't. So it's like, why isn't there more resources there? Because then those women came there and they had a warm meal and they had a place to sleep and they had a community of other folks. And literally they wouldn't want to leave the other the next day, you know, because they 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 felt safe. But yeah, doing that direct service and, you know, I did it for a long time and a bunch of different, you know, like I just, you know, working with women and families who were in recovery, who were coming out of prison. And, you know, I would tell them, you know, okay, if you do everything your parole officer says, you know, you know, we just get through this program, we'll be able to get you a job, we'll be able to get you housing, we can reunite you with your kids, maybe. And that never happened. I mean, that was so rare. I couldn't find them housing. I couldn't find them employment. They weren't getting their kids back. You know, they had gotten neglect for being in prison as if, you know, they intentionally went to prison. So I was on a phone call one day with a father. I was working at that center and we did like recovery stuff to him, mental health stuff. And his daughter was 19 and had died in a jail. She had, um, the guards had let her lay there for like 12 hours. And he said, you know, somebody should do something. Like what we're doing is not working. Like my, my, my baby should be alive, like somebody. And I said, well, you know, I agree, but it isn't going to be me. I have these felonies on my record. And, you know, I told you about those arrests. Like it was like 20, like I've, it looks like a, a small novel uh, record. So I was like, it isn't going to be me. And the next day there was a job description 
for the ACLU of Kentucky, and I had never seen anything like it. It was like six years ago, and it said folks with direct experience with the justice system are strongly encouraged to apply. I was like, what? You know, because it had always, you know, because I couldn't get a job, you know. Right. Yeah. And I was like, you know, um, I got a little spiritual side to me, probably a big one, but I'm like, yeah, I'm like, (laughs) I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to apply to this and uh, did. And we got to start a group called the Smart Justice Advocates, which were directly impacted Kentuckians who went to the legislature, who lobbied, who had community events. Um, you know, we got to work with some ministries and during Christmas, kids whose parents were incarcerated, you know, we bought them gifts and and held, you know, so we built that community and we started passing bills, you know, like the first session, it was zero. We were all defeated. I was so sad. I was like, y'all, we should not, you know, maybe just saying it. Um, and, you know, people in that group is like, no. Like, we are going to keep doing this, you know, because it was our group. Like, never was I, like, the leader. Like, it was this collective. They're like, no, we're we're not giving up. And the next year, we got one bill passed. And the year after, we got two. And the last year that I worked there, we got eight, you know. And it was, it was nuts, just building coalition and just showing up and, um, you know, just continuing to fight. And but we have so much work to do. I mean, you already know so much work, and especially states like North Carolina, um, Kentucky. You know, it's a it's a hard environment, and I and I worry about folks like that even do this work because it it's I mean, in and of itself, it's traumatizing. Are you feeling unheard after a negative encounter with a law enforcement officer, sheriff, or correctional officer? Visit the Emancipate NC website to report your encounter. Any individual can use the Emancipate NC form to report a police encounter, upload video, photographs, or other evidence, and share their information with the U.S. Today's National Police Misconduct Database. Share it with your friends and family members and community. Our communities have the wisdom and the data we need to keep us safe from rude police. By crowdsourcing this information, we will be able to analyze departmental trends, mobilize campaigns for accountability, and file more effective litigation. Remember, we keep us safe. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Because you're, I mean, you're not only traumatized, but you're dealing with other people's trauma as well by trying to help them, you know, get where they need to be. Um, I know you said that you used to be a social worker. Can you, what do you think social workers could do to be more helpful in, in this, in this journey and in this fight? Because I don't know if you know, but North Carolina has introduced a bill that children who are in juvenile, the custodian will be wherever they are. So if they are, if they if they have to go to court and they're in child welfare, that means one of the social workers would be the guardian. Or if they're in juvenile already, one of the correctional officers could be the guardian. Or if so, if they're being interrogated, that means the police, the investigator could be the guardian. Um, and so I'm just trying to figure out why it's not a social worker that should be a guardian of a child if they don't have a guardian or if they're in state's custody. But what can social, what do you feel like social workers could do more to help this fight? Yeah, I think, and now I never worked within child, you know what I mean? For one, because of my charges. So I never worked with kids. I worked more with adults um, and families, but there's, there's a lot that social workers can do. You know, I think for for one, like even in social work school, I thought it was interesting. And when I would push on my professors, they absolutely saw the point and would, you know, but when we would talk about even formerly incarcerated people or currently incarcerated people, like even the language that we used and the, that was really interesting and disheartening in social work school. And you know, for social workers too, I would see folks in my class that were so amped up to be social workers and so excited. 
and they got it out there and they didn't pay him hardly anything. They uh, had these wild caseloads, like so many folks, because, you know, we don't put resources into like helping kids, you know, we put them into like criminalizing them. But I, I wish I saw more social workers being able to advocate and talk about those issues and fight for those issues. And like what you just told me about that bill, you know, to see social workers at the Capitol, you know, saying like, this is a field that we work in. Like we should be involved in this. It shouldn't be, there shouldn't be an investigator or CEO. Um, you know, like I wish I saw that more. I wish there was more of a bridge between direct service and advocacy work. You know, so often you'll see, yes, yeah. And and like, there's no way, I don't care what job you work. I don't care what you do in life. Even if, you know, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a construction worker, a social worker, policy touches your life. Like you can't get away from it. How fast you are allowed to go down the road, the speed limit, you know what I mean? That's set by a policy. The taxes you pay at the supermarket, policy. How much they can charge you in gas, you know, gas gouging, policy. Your kids, what they learn in school, all of that. So I really wish there was more, you know, in social work school, we didn't really do a lot of macro. You know, we didn't talk about a lot of policy. And in every profession, like I wish there was more of that bridging the gap. I saw more direct service providers step into the advocacy space, you know, really fight for policies, be able to share that story and not have to worry about repercussions or, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's really... Because I'll tell you what, you know who is at the Capitol lobbying? Your prosecutors, mm-hmm. your judges, your police unions. So it's just wild that, you know, these direct service providers, you know, our community organizations, our directly impacted folks, um, you know, are often shut out of that or aren't resourced to be able to do it or have policies written saying that they can't. And that's a really messed up system in my eyes because we outnumber them, you know what I mean? And we're the ones like really living with those repercussions. So I definitely wish, you know, my wish, of course, I love social workers. I'm a social worker, but I do wish that they were able to be in the advocacy space more. And I think that if they were in the advocacy space more, I think that they could be that bridge for a lot of different communities who don't have that bridge, like just being that that voice that a lot of communities don't have. And I I just think it's important, just like I know a lot of states are starting to do the holistic defenders office, which includes social workers, like it includes a whole team, because I feel like when you're defending somebody's life, you need a whole team. I don't think it's fair that public defenders have 200 cases and some of them, most of them are murder cases and they have no help. Like they have co-counsel, but they still don't have the funds or the help. So if they had a full scope of a team, then they're able to defend their defendant more better than, I mean, because if you look at the prosecutors, they got a whole slate of everything. Like they got everything (laughs) they need. They are well-funded. You know, they have everything they need. And then on the other end, the defendant, and their defense doesn't have what they need, especially if you have um, a public defender, which most people do because nobody can pay legal fees. And that's another thing. Why are legal fees so high? That's another thing I want to dive into. Like, why are legal fees high? Like, period. You know what I mean? Because that makes it also unfair and disproportionate because we know people can't pay forty and fifty and sixty thousand dollars for a lawyer. And why is that costing that much for an expert? And like. Just the breakdown of how much it costs for the legal system to me is just ridiculous. And so that's another reason why so many people end up in the legal system is because it's just so costly and nobody can really pay to defend themselves like they're supposed to. I think, honestly, that law needs to be taught in high school. Like you should know your basic law rights in high school so that if you are in a situation where you don't have a, a public defender that can defend you, you can start defending yourself. Anybody could be their own counsel. You could be co-counsel. It's just about learning and understanding the law and the system and how it's interpreted. And the law can be interpreted many different ways, just, you know, how your, your state interprets that law. But yeah, like I, I really want to see more social workers and just more community people coming together to build a program 
that fits for everybody. And what I've been urging, encouraging a lot of people is to understand that even though these are politicians, these are your tax dollars that they take and they do this and they do that. And so when you're not in tune to the budget, then they do whatever. But if you go to your budget classes, you can you can ask for a budget for the police department, sheriff's department, and it has it has it has a breakdown of what they're taking your tax dollars doing and spending it. And I encourage everybody to go to a city council meeting, um, county commission meeting, and look at those budgets and demand that they take money and that they fund different projects that helps the community, like fund the public defender's office. Like I know. North Carolina wants to get feedback, but they said they have no intentions on funding the public defender's office, which makes no sense. Like, that's so unfair and unjust and unbalanced that you're not going to fund the public defender's office, but you'll give the prosecutors all the money that they won't need to prosecute people for a lot of things that they didn't even do, had nothing to do with at all. So we, as the people, have to understand that we have the power and that these people that are in office don't have any power. We put them there. We put these people there. If we didn't vote and vote for them, they would not be there. And understand that when they're doing these elections, they're getting millions of dollars in donations just to, to you know, to run a campaign. And, and a lot of them lie about a lot of things they're going to do, and especially prosecutors. I would never support a prosecutor who says, oh, well, look at my record. Look how many people I've prosecuted, because you don't even know the people that you prosecuted did that crime or not. Mm-hmm. So... I encourage a lot of people to really just look into your budget and stay on them about the budget because this is your money that they take out of your paycheck. You have the right to tell them where you want it to go. Please, everybody, just start, you know, going to budget meetings, going to county commission meetings, requesting budgets for all the governmental entities that that's in your state just to see what they're doing with your money. Because I know where I live at, they take a lot of our money and build parking decks downtown and try to gentrify downtown when that's when you have homeless people downtown and you have a bunch of homeless people in our county but you're not providing resourceful housing or resourceful jobs or anything of that nature you just want them to either be hanging out on the side of the street or in jail and even the 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 officers a lot of times don't take them to jail because you know they just get tired of having them in there when they're overcrowded they don't have staff so now your jails are becoming your new prisons that comes from them taking the resources from the community. And so we have to, it's really important to really watch your tax dollars that you pay for and demand that it goes to resource our communities. Absolutely. I'm I'm so glad you brought up that budget. And I agree. We should be taught this stuff in high school. Because like I said, it, it affects our lives every single day. You know, I'm not like anti-math. I love math. That was great. But I don't do trigonometry every day. But a law affects me every day, all day. It's affected me right this second. Um, And it's really unfortunate how we aren't. You know, I don't want to be super negative, but I can help. But I mean, I believe that it's like that for a reason. Um, Because only certain folks should be you know, understand those things and be in those rooms and being able to be able to change that. Yeah, I really hope folks resist that. It is your money. And what we're talking about, I hate the dichotomy and trying to put folks in boxes. It's like saying folks, you know, the whole victim perpetrator stuff. Mm. No, like people are, um, so many people that are incarcerated have been victims themselves. Yeah, or are in there being victimized. And it's the same thing with let's make our community safer. Like, I don't know about you, but I want my community safe too. I just see a different way of getting there. Um, And so like that budget and those resources, we need to be in those conversations. And we especially need to look at things that haven't worked for years and years. Like you brought up fines and fees like fines and fees and civil asset forfeiture, like don't get me started. You know, why are those fines and fees so high? I have no clue. Uh, You know, April 2nd chance month. Luckily, I got to give my colleague Ruby Welch out in Arkansas shout out because she did work really hard to get a new policy there that delays fines and fees. Obviously, we would like for them to be gone. uh, But, you know, it's a hard environment that folks don't have to start paying though, you know, they have 
uh, that 120 day grace period where all of that stops, where they can really get on their feet after incarceration. Cause I can't tell, I, I mean, I remember getting out and I owed child support because, you know, it accrued while I was in prison. My kids have been in my custody their whole life until then, but I owed child support. I owed parole and probation fees. I owed drug testing fees. I owed fines and fees. And I mean, I was about to go back to prison over child support and I just got out. You know, I'm like, I can't, this is, this is wild. And, and study after study will show, you know, they send so many people to court over fines and fees and incarcerate so many people from fines and fees. Like that costs more than what they collect in fines and fees. You know what I'm saying? Y'all like. And then my thing is. If you go do the time, why do you have to come out on parole? You completed your people who go and do 35 years. You still want them to come out on post post parole and do nine months, 12 months for what? They have completed their time. You should come out on nothing. That's more money that you have to come up with because you got to pay for the monitor. You got to pay for your probation parole officer to come out and visit you. Like. It makes no sense if you have taken away 35 years of somebody's life, especially if they did not commit that crime. And you think they should come out here and still be on probation or parole for 12 months for you to watch them is beyond. It blows my mind. Like you just I've never understood that. Yeah. And then explaining if you are finally fortunate enough to get a job because it's hard as heck getting a job when you got a criminal record Mm -hmm. and, and I remember finally getting a job I had at that counseling center I told you about where we did DV, you know, all the different counseling. And I was a receptionist and I had to explain to my boss why I had to take a day off every month because it took a whole day to go to the PMP office to wait. I didn't get paid for it. So the money wasn't coming to go pay those fines and fees, you know, and he almost fired me. You know, I'm like, like I have to go like they won't he's like why can't you just call them I'm like no that's not how go or go back to prison (laughs) yeah but think about how many people lose their job can't even work it's like how is this rehabilitation like is this really making us quote-unquote safer is this really like making families stronger when they folks can't even go to work because they have so many hurdles and you know my first house that we were finally able to rent it was me and two women that I was in prison with and the room I stayed in was the size of of the closet nobody would rent to us and it was so small the rent was so high because you can exploit somebody that has a a record you can do whatever because all your rights are really gone do you know what I'm saying like they can just use it you have a felony conviction they can turn they can discriminate against you based on a job and say, oh, it's your it's your felony conviction, but it can be really be for anything. They can say you don't you can't come to your kid's school on a field trip or to see them. I mean, I'm telling you, like the discriminate, you can do whatever this population, whatever. But I finally had that uh, little room in that house being charged crazy rent. But to rent that, I worked at the Kentucky Derby. I know that's the most Kentucky thing that's probably came out of my mouth, but had to because I could get money, you know, up there. Um, and I and I served alcohol to these very rich people. Like I've never attended the Kentucky Derby. I've only worked there. Folks like me don't attend. You know what I mean? You just work there. But yeah. I made money to put a deposit down on that house. And I almost went back to prison because I served alcohol. Because there's alcohol served at the Kentucky Derby. I'm like, but I had you told me I had to find somewhere to live where I was going to go back. I had to have a placement. I couldn't make money. Any, I couldn't get a job. You know, I couldn't make money that quick any other way. And I mean, it is this April 2nd chance month. And when we talk about reentry stuff, that's a whole can of worms too. Yes, you know? it is. Because I mean, it's like, that's, that's where the revolving door comes in. That's how they make sure you come back because really prison incarceration is meant for you to come back. They don't want to let you go because that's servitude. That is, you know, they get free service out of you to make billions of dollars and it's meant to keep you coming back. That's why they make sure that you can't have, you don't have nowhere to live. They have, you know, ban the box where you can't get a job. 
So it makes it hard for you to live outside of prison because you have all these stipulations that you can't do. So if you, if you can't get a job, you can't find somewhere safe to live and you can't put food on your table, you're going to go back and commit a crime because you don't have the simple resources and essentials that you need to make it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I see this and, you know, my incarceration reentry happened in Kentucky, but now I am so lucky to get to do this work around the nation. And like, it's so similar everywhere. It is so similar. You know, the laws, some of them may look a little different or even some of the states that I thought, you know, would be super progressive. Like, no, I mean, every state, it's still, there's so much work to be done. Like we are, it's just like you said, like just setting folks up for failure in that revolving door and the way our system works now. Like so many people, the the lifelong consequences and what that means. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that eventually we can adopt the way that Norway treats their people. Like it's, it's just about taking away their liberty, not taking away your right to vote, not saying you can't be around your children while you're incarcerated. And, and you know, just the inhumane treatment that we see here, they don't do that in Norway because they understand that people are still human. You're still a human. You might have committed a crime or made a mistake. We all make mistakes. We're human. The people in power make many mistakes. They commit several crimes every day. Believe it. They do. <laughs> don't think they don't. They do. They just don't get caught because they're in power. Yeah, I mean, you still have to acknowledge that, that we are human beings and America just throws away humans. I don't think we care about humanity here. It just doesn't seem like anybody cares about humanity because of how we, you know, just incarcerate people and the way that we treat them while they're incarcerated and then expect them to come back out here and just be all right when they have been treated inhumane for so many years. You know, it deteriorates your mind. Like it really does. I don't think people understand, but incarceration deteriorates your mind, deteriorates you as a human being. And so, Please get out there. If you aren't directly impacted or indirectly impacted, I just still encourage you to reach out to somebody in prison. Talk to them, like, because you never know what they're going through. And a lot of people, a lot of times these people just needed support. A lot of them never had support. A lot of them have had a really jacked up childhood. I interviewed another podcaster who interviews murderers, which his name is Andrew Dodd. And so he said one of the uh, one of the murderers that he interviews said that he was on some type of medicine out here. He was having some mental health issues. And he said the medicine made him like he was hearing things, like it just altered his mind. And he kept telling the doctor that this medicine isn't right. And so it never took him off. He committed like a heinous crime where he killed three or four people. And as soon as he got to prison, they took him off of that medicine. He's fine. So now he's in prison. You know, he's committed a, a serious crime. And because he was on a medication, that he kept saying something wasn't right and they didn't listen, you know, now people have lost their lives, including him by being incarcerated. And so this is what we're trying to say is to understand, we have to understand where people are. We have to meet them where they're at and understand what they're going through and try to figure out how we can work that without punishment and being punished in the carceral system, because things can be worked out. People can be helped. They just need the right direction and resources. And so I, I just appreciate you, Amanda, for telling your story because directly impacted people like you, my husband, and many other people that have experience with the carceral system are going to be the only ones that can change it because you know directly how it is and what you've been through and why you went through that situation. And so I thank you for all of your hard work and just continue to keep pushing and keep working. I know we might not feel like we're making a change because sometimes I feel like I'm just fighting a losing battle. But at the end of the day, um, I just believe that the, the narratives are starting to shift. And so a lot of people are really starting to understand that our carceral system is the product of greed and power, really. <laughs> I mean, that's just what it is. And so understanding that we have to do better as a community by our people that are incarcerated and help them stay out of that system and um, just keep resourcing our communities the best way that we know how. Yeah, absolutely. And I would uh, appreciate you so much for having me on. And yeah, I know we talked about a lot of stuff that's still super heavy and work to be done. But, you know, over here at Dream.org, like I mentioned, we just passed that bill, passed um, our empty leader, passed one in Mississippi. We passed one in Kentucky. 
So we can make those uh, changes. Like we just have to really step up there and do it together. So uh, anybody that wants to be involved in dream.org, become part of our empathy network, you know, be in community with us, please, you know, go to dream.org, hit the justice tab and come join the empathy network. Uh, Do this work with us. So grateful for you again, Sierra, and the amazing work that you do in North Carolina. Can't wait to be able to team up more. Uh, And yeah, y'all just keep staying involved. If we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it together. It's going to take all of us. So yeah, I really appreciate this. Thank you, Amanda. And tell them um, how if they want to get in touch with you, give your uh, social media handles and anything else you want them to know. Yeah, sure. So feel free to email me. My email's super simple. It's Amanda at dream.org. So it's, it's super simple. Follow me on Twitter at Amanda Hall 33. And yeah, and follow all, you know, the dream.org social medias. Uh, that will be dream.org or at the dream core. So yeah. Thanks. For and watch it. out. They might come to your city. I know dream.org came to Winston a few months ago and I attended their event in Winston. And so it was, it was a good event. I mean, you know, we talked about environmental health. That's another thing um, I want to touch on real quick is your prisons can be a environmental health. I mean, it's, it's environmental risk because a lot of these prisons were built back in the fifties, sixties, even before then. And so a lot of them have led in their paint, the water is just disgusting. I know we're having to deal with that now with one of the prisons. And so it's important to also get into the environmental work because that has also caused a lot of people to go into incarceration. Just your environment affects you a lot, whether you believe it or not, what you breathe and and just being an environment that's not good, what you drink has a lot to do with your mental health and the state of your body. And so um, we are seeing a lot of people incarcerated with cancer because of the environmental risk that the prisons have given out. And so we're also trying to tackle that as well as saying a prison is an environmental risk as well, not only a, a health risk and a safety risk, but it's also an environmental risk. So I really encourage you to tap into dream.org. They do environmental justice and technical. So really tap into them and become a part of this movement that we're trying to keep moving forward. Um, You can always reach out to Emancipate. We're moving to, but yeah, thank you again, Amanda. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much, Sierra. And happy second chance month. Thank you. Happy second chance month. And I hope to do more with you and ACLU or the dream.org and hopefully, you know, maybe come to North Carolina so we can start tackling some of our issues too as well. Oh, yeah, we're very open to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Amanda. Well, thank you again and take care. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.